I won't tell you what profession it is because I mentioned this story on Facebook one time and one of my friends who's in the profession schooled me on the fact that I completely misunderstood and that they work 24-7. So don't focus on the profession. But I was waiting in this profession's office and I needed to make an appointment. And the receptionist said to me, what days are good for you? And I said, Mondays are usually pretty good. And she replied, oh, he's not working Mondays right now. I went, okay. Um, Fridays are good days? Oh, yeah, he's not working Fridays either. And I'm beginning to think, how do you get a job where you only have to work three days a week? And then she said, let me look, let me see what we've got. And she's like, oh, okay, looks like we're booking about six months out. And at this point, I'm like, how is this going to be helpful to me? If I can't get in to see you because you're never around, that can't possibly be helpful. Now, that's one thing if it's your financial advisor or your doctor or your dentist or the school superintendent or whatever the profession was, but it's another thing entirely if it's God. If you're like, I never seem to be able to get in touch with him. That's a big problem. And that's gonna figure into the story that we're gonna to tell today about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So we've moved along in the story of the Old Testament. Last week we were in the monarchy where King Saul was the first king. It was gonna be transferred to David soon. And now we've moved significantly down the field to the point where the kingdom of Israel has, has actually split into two. There's two kingdoms now. There's the kingdom of Israel in the north and the king of Judah in the south. And so in the book of Kings, it tells the story of these various kings. And they're all bad for the most part. And then in each case, God usually sends a prophet to them to try and call them back to being faithful to him. And so that's part of the story that we're going to look at in 1 Kings 18 today. So in this story, we've got Ahab the king, and we've got probably the most famous and influential prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. In fact, he's so important that Jews to this day save a seat at the Passover Seder for Elijah, just in case he shows up. So we're going to pick up the story in 1 Kings 18, verse 16. Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So Ahab is the king and he thinks Elijah is a pain in the neck. He thinks Elijah is a pain in the neck because Elijah keeps prophesying against Ahab. And Elijah says, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. And part of the problem is that Ahab has married Jezebel, who you know, comes down through history as an evil woman, and she probably was. She was a foreign princess, and she brings her foreign gods with her into Israel. And in order to keep the peace, the king has promoted worshiping these foreign gods also. And this causes an issue among God's people. 
I mean, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And God has made a covenant with his people, a sacred promise that they will be his people and he will be their God. Plus, these other gods aren't real. Now, there's a whole bunch of other gods, a veritable pantheon. But the most important in Israel at this time are the ones that are mentioned, Asherah and then Baal. And we're going to kind of leave Asherah alone for right now and just talk about Baal because he's the preeminent one. Baal is simply the Semitic word for Lord. It's a generic word. And it gets mixed up with other words and actually comes down to us uh, as Beelzebub, which means uh, Lord of the Flies. And Beelzebub comes up a lot in other literature and notably in Bohemian Rhapsody. But it all comes from this word for Lord, this other God. Now, both Baal and Asherah are fertility gods. So fertility can go a couple of different ways. There's the fertility like what you're thinking, but probably even more importantly in this context, it's actually about the fertility of the land. So these are also weather gods because they're entirely dependent in this uh, part of the world on rain. They don't have a whole lot of lakes. They don't have a whole lot of rivers. It's got to rain in order for them to have crops that will grow. Israel is dependent upon that. And right now, they're going through a drought. And so the God who can provide rain is incredibly important. In verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver before two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So this is the setup of the story. You have two competing gods or groups of gods. And he's saying to the people, you've got to make a decision. You can't have it both ways. They hadn't really left God, but they hadn't totally committed either. They're kind of trying to hedge their bets. Now, we're familiar with that. We might not necessarily be tempted by a fertility god or tempted to follow the god of fire, which Baal was also, but there are definitely other gods that we try to follow. Uh, there's the god of wealth. There's the god of youth. There's the god of escapism. And we don't necessarily follow them to the exclusion of following Jesus. I mean, I like Jesus, but I also dabble a little bit with astrology. Or I like Jesus, but I really kind of worship the God of money. And so we kind of end up on the fence. It's like we're trying to do two different things. But the problem is you can't serve two gods and you can't really follow two very diametrically opposed philosophies at the same time. And our behavior, the choices that we make, the gods we decide to follow, matter to us personally, but it also matters to the cause of Christ in the world. So, verse 22, Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people finally weigh in and say, what you say is good. So 
Elijah's setting up this contest. And part of it he has, you know, put in favor of Baal because Baal is supposed to be a god of fire. And so it shouldn't be real hard for the god of fire to send fire down. Now, there's also some numbers in here. Elijah talks about 450 prophets of Baal before he talked about 400 prophets of Asherah. And it's just Elijah. So is Elijah just complaining that he's the only one left? Well, at some level, yes, because Elijah's on the verge of burnout, and if you read the story further, he gets pretty depressed because he feels like he's the only one. But I think at this point, the other point is that just by sheer numbers, Asherah and Baal seem more popular. But popularity isn't necessarily the best way to judge what's true and what's right. So they're going to have a contest. It's this single combat, winner take all, like last week with David and Goliath, except this week it's going to be Baal and God. And now the people answer back. All of a sudden they come alive. They're like, okay, this sounds good to us. We can't really figure out who we want to follow, so let's see who produces results. And this is an important point, and we'll also return to it a little bit later, because the Israelites kind of practice a practical rather than theoretical monotheism. In other words, the only, God, the only God who counts as real is the one who acts. The one who has power to help his people, that's the God who must be real. If they can't really help, then what's the point? Ain't nobody got time for that. So they're looking for the God who actually works. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. It's a long time. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. I mean, there's this picture of the desperation of the people to get Baal to act. It's sort of funny, but it's also sort of tragic. They start out calling on his name, and then they shout, and then they dance around, and then they start cutting themselves with swords and knives. Why? To try and get their God to pay attention. That's why Elijah mocks them. And this is part of the problem with other gods, whether it's the Greek gods or the Roman gods or the ancient gods of the Near East, they're all kind of self-centered. They are there for you to serve them, but not there to help you. Our God, however, is the God who continually gives himself to his people. Our God is the God who promises never to leave them. Our God is the God who promises to pay attention and to listen. Our God invites us into a relationship where he cares for us and seeks our good. And if you think about our lives or the people that we know, how desperate we become 
when we follow other gods. I mean, I think of people that I've known who will stoop to amazing depths to keep ahead of the mountain of debt they've created trying to keep a lifestyle that they can't afford. I think of people who get strung out on drugs. I think of people who will abandon their families in order to pursue the God of happiness. And nobody ever starts out going, I'd like to lose all my teeth and live on the street and steal from people to survive. Or I really hope I end up ruining the lives of everyone around me and my children hate me. But too many times we end up in those places out of the desperate way we become when we're trying to serve other gods. We end up doing some crazy stuff to chase the gods of our lives. And that's what they're doing. They're doing crazy stuff just trying to get their god's attention and nothing happens. No one answers, no one pays attention. Baal may claim to be the god of fire, but he has no fire when it's needed. His promises are empty. So now you need to feel the tension of the time. The day is over. There's not much time and there's not much sunlight left. And this heightens the tension. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So what Elijah is doing here, I think, is he's making sure they know that this isn't a trick. I mean, he thoroughly soaks down everything. So it would not naturally catch on fire. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to them. What an interesting prayer. If I was Elijah and I had put myself out like this, I might have prayed, God, I've sort of got out on a limb here for you. Don't fail me now. Show them that I was right. But that's not what Elijah prays. What Elijah prays is that it would be known that he is God. And that's, much, that's a lot different from let them see that I was right. He wants them to see that God is the real God. And then he also prays and let them see that I'm your servant. There's an interesting thing going on there, I think, because people have basically been asking Elijah, why should we listen to you? And so he wants to demonstrate that God is real and that he's God's faithful representatives, using words sometimes and sometimes not. There are all sorts of people that we come across who ask, why should I listen to you? I can see, we hope, that the answer would be, I can see by the way that you live that God is real. So that's what we're hoping for, and that's what Elijah is hoping for. Verse 38, 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So contrast all the histrionics of the Baal worshipers who got no action and the simple prayer of Elijah, which God answered. What the 450 prophets of Baal couldn't get Baal to do by dancing and slashing themselves all day long, God did in the last brief moment before sunset in response to the simple prayer of his sincere follower. And after they see this, the people finally weigh in. The Lord, he is God. Now, I don't think it's so much that they're wishy-washy and they're like, okay, now we'll choose. I think they've seen the evidence and they realize that God is God and they commit. So what are some takeaways for us from this story? Is the lesson that we should build altars and make big claims for God and challenge other faiths to duels? No, this was for a certain time and place where people expected things like that to happen. Is the lesson that the culture is totally corrupt and needs to be reformed? Well, I don't think this is so much a critique of the culture as it is an encouragement and a warning to us. It's far too easy to make this a story about what's wrong with them. The Bible always starts with requiring God's people to come to a time of self-reflection and repentance if necessary. Is it I, Lord? Am I of the problem? And so it's an encouragement to us to recognize who God is and live faithfully. It's not a story about how decayed the rest of the culture. So the lesson that we need is to choose who we're going to follow and to make sure that our lives are consistent with that. And why is that so important? Well, our relationship with Jesus starts off transactionally. Yes, we should get to the point where we love and worship God for who he is, not just for what he has done for us. St. John of the Cross has a lot to say about this, and it's worth looking at. But the relationship begins transactionally. I recognized that following Jesus is the only way I found true peace. It's the only place where I find true meaning for my life. It's the only place that I find real hope and real joy. Nothing else I've ever found provides that. None of the other gods provide those things. They all overpromise and underdeliver. It's also important for us to choose and be authentic in how we live our lives because of how it affects other people. We're going to be talking a lot in the coming months about the duns. We used to talk to some degree about the nuns, not the Catholic sisters, but the people who, when asked about spirituality and faith, replied that they had none. And what's happened over the last several years was exacerbated through COVID is the rise of the duns. It's people who have faith, people who are not opposed to Jesus. They're just done with church. And lots of times it's because of pain. Lots of times it's because they haven't experienced the church to be a healthy or a safe place for them or any number of reasons. But these are not people who are hostile to the faith. They're just done with the way it's currently being lived out. I made a friend recently on a fishing trip, and he's intrigued by the fact that I am a pastor. 
and he just keeps engaging me in conversation. And he sent me a, uh, an, an excerpt from the Wall Street Journal the other day talking about faith. And he kind of gave me the executive summary. And I'm just going to read verbatim what he wrote. Some highlights. I'm in the 20%. What 20%? Well, watch. The market research split Americans into four categories. Non-Christians, 16% of the sample. People who are spiritually open, 20%. So he's one of those. Actually grew up in the church. Jesus followers, 34% and engaged Christians, 30%. It showed a wide gap between the first three groups and the last category. Most people in the first three categories said the behavior of Christians is a barrier to faith. More than two-thirds agreed with the statement, followers of Jesus say one thing, but do not follow those things in practice. The study showed that Christians see their faith as the greatest love story, but those outside the faith see Christians as a hate group. And then he said, this has been my experience. And I'm like, how interesting is this, that he keeps engaging me in conversation, knowing what I do. And so I keep just trying to feed back to him. I'm not like that. The people in my church are not like that. Because I think the story that we can tell of what Jesus is really like and what his followers are really like can have an enormous effect on people. I just keep thinking that one encounter with a loving, gracious follower of Jesus can change all sorts of stereotypes and help to heal all sorts of wounds. I think a lot of people are practical monotheists like the ancient Israelites were. People are looking for what produces results. And every action that we have with people is a chance to demonstrate that Jesus is real. Now, sometimes you mess up. I mean, we're just human. But there is a tremendous amount of power in going back and saying, I'm sorry, I messed up. And so even if we mess up, we can still be used by God to show that Jesus is real in our lives. There's just enormous power in story. And you don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to know the four spiritual laws or do any other thing except just be you. And as you lead your life, you'd be surprised the things that people will ask. Why are you so into serving? Why are you so heavily invested in making a difference in the community? Why do you do business differently? Or my favorite one of late, why do you seem so normal? And any of those should be things that you can enter into and answer and demonstrate that our God is the real God. So these are stories of origins. What do we learn from this story? We learn that we don't have to make God pay attention to us. He's already listening. We learn that God is faithful to his promises. He isn't capricious. He can be counted on. We learn that God is compassionate towards us, and we learn that other gods will ultimately disappoint. So let me ask you three questions. What are evidences in your life that you are a committed follower of Jesus? How have you found that other gods ultimately disappoint? And what story of God's faithfulness do you have to tell?